0: The State of Digital Publishing is creating a new publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this episode, we speak with David Harris, the editor-in-chief of OpenStax, about the state of higher education publishing, technological developments, and community partnerships used to deliver on-demand learning for students. Let's begin! Hi, David. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me today.
0: Thank you for joining us. How's things in OpenStack been recently?
1: Oh, it's been a tremendous year. Uh, the, uh, the usage levels are higher than ever, and uh, we're very optimistic about the fall.
0: That's really exciting. Um, for those people who don't know, yeah, if you can just give a background about yourself and OpenStacks.
1: Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm David Harris. I'm the uh, Editor-in-Chief uh, for OpenStacks. And uh, I have a a long uh, career in in publishing. I've worked for the major publishers. I uh, also uh, uh, was the president of an ed tech company called WebAssign. And I started working at OpenStax, well, before it was OpenStax, about uh, seven and a half years ago. OpenStax is a nonprofit organization based out of uh, Rice uh, University in Houston, Texas. And our mission is to improve access and learning uh, for students around the world. And we've developed a library of digital and also available in print uh, OER, Open Education Resources, textbooks uh, that are used by many students now.
0: So it's interesting. How did Rice University get involved in actually forming OpenStax? Why was it formed within Rice University?
1: Great, that's a great question. So our founder, Rich Baranek, is an electrical engineering professor at Rice University. Uh And he founded a program called Connections uh, back in 1999. This is even before there were open education resources. And he wanted to build a publishing uh, platform uh, that utilized open licenses so that information could be shared widely. And uh, that grew substantially until uh, 1999. But it was mostly individual donations of content and uh, what we realized is in order to cross uh, the chasm into the mainstream especially in education we needed to produce materials that were very easy to adopt that met scope and sequence requirements and that's how openstax was born
0: so is your current content involving uh entail like lesson modules and is that what you define as the content currently or
1: yes Basically, uh, and this is uh, really to Rich's credit, we originally thought if you gave people a platform, they would build up these Legos and then adopt it. But the reality is, is that faculty and educators just don't have the time to do that. So if you provide them with 85, 90 percent of what they want, very large blocks, so to speak, then they can adapt it to what they need in their classroom. So it's really moving from an adapt to adopt model to an adopt and then adapt model.
0: So does that mean that they would adapt a, a lesson framework offline or can they change it as well online and then adapt it offline? Uh, of uh, use it offline.
1: Yeah, this is one of those great questions where you can say yes to both. So a lot of people will adapt it online. Uh, if we've done our job editorially and we meet the scope and sequence, that level of adaptation should actually be minimal. However, there are some people Mm -hmm. in the community that want to do uh, pedagogical reform, like the flipped classroom, and they may adapt it offline to a greater degree.
0: So so how are you guys set up editorially to build up the content and ongoing content for OpenStax?
1: Yeah, so we had to look at this very closely uh, in comparison to the traditional publishing model. One thing about the traditional publishing model is no one argued against the quality of the curation, the peer review the scholarship of the authors, et cetera. There we made some changes to the traditional model in that we don't do single or projects because of the schedule risk. So all of our books, our uh, we have a team of authors who work on them. That's the first uh, phase of it. And those authors go through a very rigorous evaluation process. And then all of the content mm-hmm. is extensively peer reviewed uh, by the community. And then it's copy edited and uh, goes through a scientific, if applicable, uh, accuracy check. That process is not inherently that different from what a traditional publisher would do. But it does speed it up having multiple authors. Uh, where we really made significant changes is in the production side of it. So we don't use a traditional program like InDesign. All of the books are designed through meta-tagging schemes and produced in CNXL, and then we can publish it on the our connections platform. And the way that system works, that allows us to publish PDF WebView mobile in a single instance, uh, which saves a lot of time and it also allows editing of those resources so that we can do update across those different platforms without having to touch multiple files. And that really speeds the uh, time to produce these. I remember when I was working at a publishing to create a, a traditional introductory textbook would take to produce it anywhere from nine to 12 months. We've got that down to three to four months.
0: That's a big difference, yeah. So you said that there's a community aspect to it, the way people, people would peer review it. So how do you make sure that you constantly build a community and, and have people who are regularly engaged?
1: Great. Right. This is a, a great question. I don't think OpenStax could have scaled uh, to the level that we are. We'll be, ser- be serving about 1.5 million students this year across 50% of the uh, institutions in the, in the U.S., for example. Without tech, without the media, without using a CRMS, we actually use Salesforce and salesforce.org has been very generous to us. So we're able to capture a lot of market data and then get our message out uh, through PARDOT uh, email campaigns. It's enabled us to build quite a community amongst our users. And then we also have what are called OpenStax Hubs uh, through a group called OER Commons, where the community is. Uh, building resources around OpenStax textbooks uh, that can amplify uh, the work that we're doing. So I think these two elements have really helped us scale.
0: Sorry, just to yeah. confirm on the last part, you said that the groups would form around the textbook, is that correct?
1: Correct, so for instance, for we in these OpenStax hubs, uh, the community has developed it's a, approximately 500 extra resources these could be PowerPoint slides, assessment items, labs, uh, video activities, et cetera. And they've donated them to these hubs. So what we like to call them are communities of practice. And this is something that we think will accelerate over time and is really very unique to OpenStacks and is really a byproduct of the open licensing.
0: That's pretty interesting. Um, how do you How do you make sure that you can keep everything updated?
1: Great question. So all of our books are annually updated for two reasons. Number one, in some instances, in some domains, there's a lot of topical updates you need to do. Uh, In other areas in STEM, uh, there's no such thing as a a perfect textbook. And there's a radar. So we work with the uh, authoring teams and the community to identify areas that need to be changed. And we change them and uh, update them on an annual basis
0: so you, how do you have enough bandwidth then to cover all the topics like i guess you have to do resourcing beforehand and have all the planning beforehand
1: correct so it's a really it's a parallel management challenge and rather than a vertical one in that we have these teams already in place they've been involved with these projects and we schedule that out during the year. right now we have a library of 30 textbooks so it's mm-hmm. relatively um, manageable.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll come to future plans after. I'm not, I won't jump ahead at the moment, sure. but um, let's take a step back, David. So you you're giving a bit of context around how the education publishing space was back in the day, how it took quite mm-hmm. a bit of time to, to get textbooks sell and, and I guess digital in, in general. Can you give a bit of a context for those who don't know much about your space?
1: Oh, absolutely. So if we think about the traditional publishing model, and this has actually changed significantly in the last two to three years, you can think of it as a monolithic marketplace in which there were three or four dominant players, and they controlled all the means of a creation, production, distribution, and then platform support. Uh, and that gave them incredible control overpricing and this became very inefficient over time so what OpenStax is moving towards and where the entire market is moving towards is much more of a distributed model in which you have different groups partnering together around content development around app development etc and this drives efficiency so I don't need to do everything myself anymore I can go and partner with other groups for instance, Cengage Learning is now using our content in some of their platforms, and that drives down the cost. Uh, we partner with, with a company called ExpertDA in physics uh, to provide online homework because we don't have that capability, and that drives down those costs. So it's much more of a shared model in this new format, and, and that's driving efficiency, and we're going to continue to see that accelerate uh, in the market. What this means in terms of market context is that this is going forward have to be willing to give up a little bit of control. That means sharing customers. That means uh, sharing market intelligence. It means sharing, in some cases, revenue. But I think that's fine because uh, the more shared responsibility you have, the uh, the greater efficiency you can drive.
0: So from a customer point of view, though, they don't see that you got that your upper stacks might be showing data with so, or information from someone else. Information from someone else. Is that correct? Or would they know that it's well, coming from them?
1: Right. So information sharing in the education space is actually very regulated uh, through FERPA. So the only type of information that is shared is anonymized uh, data. So I think that's a really good thing. In terms of the impact on the customer, what does it mean? it means that the customers actually have more choice than they ever had before. You're no longer locked into a specific author or a specific platform. You can now mix and match what authorship you want with platform to really meet your curricular goals. And that choice is actually very liberating once people discover it.
0: But for example, if I was gonna log into the Stats platform, would they, and and I'm gonna be accessing the chemistry homework, are they going to yep. see that it's coming from your partner or is it? are they going to see that it's coming from you? Is it white-labeled or is it...?
1: Great question. So in terms of, if you, let's use chemistry as an example. If you came into our chemistry, you could go and adopt and use our chemistry textbook. Students could come to our site. They don't need to register. No passwords required, and they could download it for free and have access forever. But some people, some faculty in that market, think it's important uh, and it, uh, to assign homework, uh, gradable homework, to support what they're doing in lecture uh, and in lab. And so if you go to our site, you will see that we have a myriad of platforms that support our chemistry book. So from chemistry actually would be sapling, sapling learning, which is now part of Macmillan. And so you can assign sapling, uh, you can sign your homework through Sapling and then they will link and provide resources to uh, OpenStax and so there it would be a, a mixed experience for the student but from a faculty perspective they're getting the best of both worlds they're getting to benefit from the very low cost of OER they know their students will have permanent access and then they also get to get the uh, uh, gradable homework option.
0: Understand. Uh, with the audience development content distribution, as you mentioned, besides partnerships, is there uh, content repurposing? Is there any other ways you can distribute content in the education space?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, this is something that has changed dramatically, really, over the last uh, 18 to 24 months. So we think of uh, the open stacks ecosystem. What I just described was a service partner in that ecosystem. We also have distribution partners. So we work with uh, Indico, uh, which is the largest independent distributor of physical textbooks. Uh, We also have iBook versions through the iBook store, Amazon versions available for free, for Kindle versions, I should say. And then increasingly over the last year, what uh, has been pushed uh, into the market are what they call these inclusive access programs which are really automatic purchase programs where the student will go in and when they're registering for the course, uh, they can uh, subscribe to their digital files. So OpenStax has worked with VitalSource and Shelf, Barnes & Noble, and Follett, and participates in those, what they call inclusive access models. So you'll be able to download uh, your OpenStax resource at the time you register for the course.
0: It's more of a subscription product.
1: That is, uh, although with OpenStax you have permanent free access. I guess you would call it a permanent yeah. subscription model.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And how do you map out the content distribution whenever you're going to be updating new textbooks and, and be expanding it to new, new textbooks? How do you plan that out? Yes, yeah.
1: yeah, so we pl- the distribution model is really driven by where the market is demanding the resource needs to be. Our guiding philosophy on this is anywhere, anytime, on any device across multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. So we pursue strategies uh, that will maximize uh, that core part of our mission. When we first started out, we actually, on the redistribution side, we thought, oh, maybe we could generate sustaining income through uh, a $4.99 fee of e distribution, but students are very smart, and they figured out, you know, we will uh, we'll just go to OpenStax and get it for free. So we actually liberalized our model, and now we want to make it available free on as many platforms as possible. And I think that's a better strategy for us.
0: Is it because that means that you're going to get more? Yeah. What does that mean to you by getting as much people as possible?
1: Right. So, we as a nonprofit, our profit is, is having a greater impact on students. And so, if we can make it available for free in multiple different formats, we have greater reach and greater impact on students' lives. And that's a real win for us.
0: Well, what would have been the case if, if you guys were profit and you were accountable and with revenue targets? And- that's
1: it, that's it. So, if we were, if, if I put my old publishing um, hat on, what, where we would be different for profit, you, then you start to worry about uh, DRM, digital rights management. And that is putting, digital rights management, even though rights is in the world, but word, is putting limits on how people can consume your content. Limits by time, limits by how much you can print it, uh, limits by how you can share it, how you derive your value. Uh, because, you know, your content's got value and, and you sell it for a certain price. So it's a very different model. We want mm-hmm. maximum distribution. They want maximum revenue around a controlled distribution strategy.
0: Do you look at other exa- industry examples when you're trying to develop the license? If I know now you guys are focusing on as much platforms, as much distribution, but in terms of distribution, general, are you looking at other examples of industries like Spotify and how they've done licensing? agreements or, or do you
1: just, yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're very inspired by those types of arrangements in terms of the licensing. The most frequent analogy we hear is like the the top hat model where they provide a lot of enhancements around open, uh, software. And that's really what our ecosystem has done is providing enhancements around our base openly licensed content. And that served well for us because that also drives our sustainability.
0: In terms of trying to deliver different content based on age groups. So obviously you've got primary, then you've got secondary. How do you think the technology um, consumption is, have you seen any difference in technological consumption as their preferences on types of formats or based on the analytics and data that you guys gather through your ecosystem?
1: Yeah, so we're primarily in the post-secondary market, and we do yep. have uh, AP. So there, it's interesting. The post-secondary market: ninety percent of our consumption is digital, ten uh, percent is print. Which my understanding is that's almost uh, that's a very high number uh, for digital. But the students now uh, they really grew up all digital, so it's it's less of a surprise in the AP courses. Uh, it's nearly all digital we've We've seen very little print, and I think that might be an affordability issue. As you move mm-hmm. down grade bands, that digital that digital interaction that the student has with the content has to be obviously grade level appropriate and I think more game like in certain ways. Uh, but I'm not an expert in uh, you know uh, k through uh, eight pedagogy.
0: Understood. How have you seen the difference in the digital consumption? in the past five to seven years? Or how has it changed the delivery of the content?
1: Yes, probably the biggest surprise, which is counterintuitive, is when we started this, we had to have a print component to prove that we were real. It was, it's kind of funny. We would go to conferences, and at the time, the publishers had no physical books in their booths to prove that they were modern. We had to have physical books to prove we were real. And uh, we always thought that was, there was a lot of irony in that. What, what surprises me is we thought by this point that the print would have completely evaporated, that no one would be using the print. But that sh- actually, that's not the case. There is still a certain segment of the population that need and want print. And we say that's terrific. If that's the way you want it, uh, you, should, you should have it that way. I would say, especially in the STEM areas, the use of these resources in assignable coursework uh, that's also adaptable, that is growing significantly. And that's a trend that we'll see over time. And the question for us is twofold. How do we make that more of an interactive experience for the student to keep them engaged with the content? One, two, how do we make that more personal for them so that we are meeting their specific learning goal?
0: Are there specific formats and different ways of engagement that you're looking at now that you're trying to develop?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Predominantly, on the digital side, it's downloading a PDF today, and I think that's for ease of assignability. Uh, we are moving to what we call a consistent text experience, so that the HTML5 web pages uh, align with a, a the numbering scheme of a PDF, just to make a sign- signability, you know, easier for the instructor. This is probably unique to us in that a lot of the projects we produce are in STEM, and so problem numbering and section numbering is very important.
0: Is it, I know you've got your distribution with your partners and service managers, but is there any specific promotion or community outreach or any other initiatives they have to take in order to generate the awareness from a nonprofit point of view?
1: Yes, absolutely. Remember earlier in the, in the conversation, yeah. we were talking about this distributed model yeah. and this ecosystem that we have. This has really fueled our growth. So open OpenStax has approximately fifty ecosystem partners, and uh, they provide solutions around OpenStax and when they go out into the market and they speak to faculty, they all talk about one common thing, and that's OpenStax, and that has really helped build awareness and that's very exciting
0: that's yeah a hundred percent like you you want to like you said, you want to make an impact as much as you can to as many people as you can. So it's definitely, um, when you saw, when, when OpenStack started, did they just focus on Texas market or how did they, how was the rollout strategy?
1: So uh, really crediting Rich Barronet never thought of this. The best way I would describe his thing, he thinks globally and acts locally. So we've Mm -hmm. always thought about global impact and I think that's what digital does. And we've never thought about, oh, it's just for this, for this region. You know the learning of biology or physics is the same in zimbabwe as it is in ohio uh obviously there might be language differences but the core concepts don't change and they transcend uh, many barriers the exception to that may be in some humanities area where you get more cultural uh, impacts on the curriculum but certainly in stem it really knows no barriers
0: Um, that's good to hear but you have to localize it um So with that as well, what are you seeing the current challenges and opportunities at the moment with other alternatives out there? Because just personally not being in the education publishing space, I've seen a growth in a lot of uh, study notes type of sites where you can get answers to certain material and and et cetera. What do you you think are some of the challenges and opportunities in your space at the moment?
1: Right. So that's a great point. I mean, that's a learning challenge in that today if you're – taking a biology course or a physics course or a calculus course, you can take your answer, you put it into a, a Google search engine, You so you'll take the question, and then you will get the answer. That's a problem I think everyone in the space has to wrestle with because that, how much does that promote learning? How can we improve learning through search? That's something that actually we're looking at right now. It's a very, very important question. In terms of challenges there, an OER producer... Uh, like OpenStax has, frankly, there's a debate in the community in regards to OER around demand and supply. There are some who will say, you know what, there's enough supply. We just have to generate awareness to drive demand. We don't take that view because we've found when you build a high quality demand is there. And so we would argue that we need to still continue to look at the supply side. OpenStax has had a great impact, but it's just beginning. We've only had an impact in 30 courses. Now they're very highly enrolled. But what about students getting a vocational degree or a nursing degree or a degree in computer science? Why can't we improve their access to learning resources throughout the entire curriculum? And we believe that a professionally produced OER will scale rapidly and then it can be adapted locally. So the challenge is, is, I think, in the market, both for a nonprofit and for a for profit, is the understanding that content can still drive innovation and technology. Everybody wants to invest in technology, it's yes, very important, but those platforms without a good content base and without a good assessment base don't have a lot of value, except for people who want to build everything themselves. So I think the challenge is, is to remind people and investors. Uh, and philanthropists, that you still need to invest in content. It's about and, not all. That makes
0: sense. How much do you think non-profit, like, like OpenStax, plays a role in advancing uh, the, the publication industry, uh, the publishing industry in education and versus a, a, a for-profit?
1: You know, it would probably be best to ask them, but I would refer you to an AEI study that showed textbook prices increasing really unrelentingly for 40 years I believe it was 2017 they showed that these prices were actually beginning and this really coincides with the mainstreaming of OER that there are more high quality OER available today than there have been in a generation and that has put a dampening on price increasing in fact I think they referred to it as the southwest effect where we go those prices seem to come down. So I think it's very much had an impact. Let's use Cengage Learning as an example. Two things that they've done this year they've done what they call Open Now, which is leveraging open resources within their platforms. They sell that for, I believe, it's roughly $30. And then they came out with Cengage Unlimited, where you have unlimited access to their library for a year for, I believe, $119. These things would have been unthinkable three or four years ago. So, I do think that the OER has really driven this conversation, as well as institutions who are looking at ways to make education more affordable for students. So, those two factors are significantly driving the market, and I think it's great. It's benefiting students.
0: Are you looking at international examples as well and trying to adopt it in your model, or are they looking more towards how? Start
1: now. We are, and this is a question we get all the time. What are you doing internationally? About 20% of our user base is international. But frankly, as a, as a relatively small nonprofit, we don't have the bandwidth to really engage this on an uh, international scale. We do have pilots going on in the UK. You can think of it almost like a franchise model where we're working with a group. Uh, that is promoting and adapting our resources another great example is BC campus up in Canada uh, where they've taken our resources and they've adapted them to meet curricula, and those are doing very well so I think when we see organizations in those local uh, environments use, leveraging the license and adapting I think that's a good economical way to do this we'd love to be able to do that in Mexico for instance
0: I think you hit the nail on the head so not licensing is the way they go. With the technology aspect, you mentioned, David, you know how we spoke about people who are just searching the question in Google and finding the answer. So yeah. what? how are you limiting that activity from happening or what's some of the innovation behind the technology so that it is within the OER and, and not so much di- distributed or leaked that way?
1: So this is, yeah, this is not an OER-specific problem. The publishers, uh, the publishers okay. face this problem, too, because all you have to do is just, if you went to Survey Physics, take the end of chapter, put it into Google, the answer will come up. This is something that I think that the education community has to work with the digital platform groups, like Google, and how can we work together to identify learning opportunities in that search? How can these questions... Uh, be tagged in such a way that they're identified as challenging for students, and then provide them down a path where they can do more thinking. But these uh, these types of conversations are still very nascent, so it, we, there's a long way to, there's a long way to go here. I guess you know from my days at WebAssign, there's only a certain amount of energy you can put into this. There are some people who always want to game the system, and they, there's consequences for gaming the system. You might not actually learn the material so well, and so you won't have that lasting knowledge and understanding. So there is a price that people are paying already. But I do think that the, creatively we need to come up ways to remedy this. Try and give students an opportunity to take some more responsibility on their learning. It's a, this has to be a community solution.
0: How think? How big do you think on the scale of importance is this at the moment, or do you think that? I know, I know it's a community thing, but do you think it's it would have enough active involvement from the community if everyone collectively raised that point, or do you think that there's other more pressing issues that you need to you you can focus on?
1: Right. So that's a great question. I'm probably not the best one to answer it. So, I, I think it's it's a question. It comes down to question of the individual learner. What is your goal here? Is it just to get 100 on the homework? Well, that's okay, but then you might not be ready for the exam. So I think it has to be an individual question, and the market needs to come up with some solutions. I still don't think it rises to the level of the access crisis in education, the affordability uh, crisis. Uh, That is still top of mind, uh, especially for a group like OpenStax. We've got to get them these resources so that they have a chance at success. Now, how they manage their education—that's really on the individual. And there's there's so much, only so much we can do.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you think that there's, in some extent, people are because when you look at other news properties or sites, they're all experimenting with subscriptions and and paid models. Yeah. Do you think people are starting to get into the mindset of you need to pay for premium content or? Are you sticking to your guns and trying to make everything free and accessible as possible, David?
1: So this is a, what I call a, a race to the bottom question.
0: Right.
1: I think there's many different categories of content. So think of entertainment. Should all entertainment be free? No, absolutely not. But should content that fundamentally hasn't changed in millennia, like physics or calculus, that you could consider that as a public good Should that be free and accessible? Yes, I think it should be free and accessible. But then there's the gray area on providing value around that. Let's say homework services, quizzing engines, adaptable personalization. Does that have to be free? No, I don't think it does. If you want those technological advances to be sustaining and to be of high quality and to be reliable, frankly. So I think it's a continuum uh, but the basic knowledge in education, I think that is a right for people.
0: That's a very, very clear answer. Thank you for that. Um, I really like that answer, David. I know we spoke about some of the initiatives that you're focusing on, but are you able to provide a top level, even from your from your team, mm-hmm. as to what you're doing in general?
1: Sure, absolutely. For
0: 2018, right?
1: So I mean, yeah. there's there's several major thrusts that that we're that we're working on now. So our founder, Rich Baronek, is a machine learning expert, and so we have a research team that's really looking at what are the factors that we can deploy in these resources through online experiences that can drive learning and understanding so that we can improve learning. That's a major emphasis of his work and and our work, and this is gonna take a long time. I'd, I'd like to say it takes patient capital to figure out what are the optimal ways we can deliver uh, an educational experience to students. Uh, so that's the first major effort. The next major effort as we touched on area is, uh, you know, seeking out supporters for building out uh, these libraries so that they're much more better. So if you're a computer science major or a nursing student, you can improve access to education materials throughout your educational career. That's the second major thrust. And then the, ma- the third major area is building out, uh, continue to work with our ecosystem partners to provide exceptional value and options to faculty and students. So they have the optimal, the highest value resource, hopefully with the longest possible access periods at the lowest possible prices. So I think those three areas of focus will continue to drive the market and make it much more dynamic.
0: You said that you were looking at identifying learning opportunities. So what's some of the more specific things, if we we can go into some of the specifics, what are some of the projects that you're focusing on on that aspect?
1: Absolutely. So this year we're piloting a program called OpenStax Tutor, and uh, Mm -hmm. this uses uh, machine learning algorithms. So, and we, it's in physics, sociology and biology. So when a student goes and completes a series of assessments, uh, also activities, what the system is doing is analyzing the student work against the work of uh, her peers, and then Mm -hmm. it will make recommendations to those students uh, based on their performance. And it, it, instead of just giving an item-by-item item score, it gives a performance forecast with suggestions for additional practice and review. And these algorithms, as more and more students use the system, get smarter and smarter on their recommendations. And so we can improve our confidence that these interventions will actually help the students.
0: What, what do you think that you can... How long do you think that you can come to the point where you can say, okay, um, the system that we've built is... And maybe maybe you can't answer this it's more. Maybe it's more um, someone else. Yeah, it's, maybe it's not your it's your question. But what do you think that, that that there's a point where you can say it's accurate enough where you, you can use it as a tool to for to students to understand better, better understand their learning needs.
1: If I had the answer to that question, I'd be able to live on a beautiful island. Um, the uh, I think everyone is. I think a lot of people. That's what they're chasing uh, in the market now what are the factors that we can isolate that can really drive learning outcomes and this is going to take a long time this is not there's no there's not going to be any magic or silver bullets on this it's going to be a combination of technology and uh, practice and we must never forget that uh, teacher faculty agency will play a key role in this Uh, so uh, i think it's years off but we'll be making gains. And that's what makes the market so exciting and dynamic right now.
0: Is that what drives you as a person to, and, and someone who, who continues to work in this industry to keep moving forward? Oh,
1: absolutely. That—that that, that's Access, improving learning, and frankly, disrupting that monolithic market that I felt was corrupting, those are the major drivers.
0: How do you keep um, – there's always going to be technology, right? there's always going to be – that aspect where it's going to keep evolving so how do you keep making sure that you stay, stay ahead then and, and keep motivated with your own goals but professional development goals? it's a
1: great it's a great question i think staying in touch with the customer and really understanding their pain points i've done that throughout my career and that keeps you on the straight and narrow and i think it also keeps you practical It's very easy to, you know, if you divorce yourself from the customer, to get pie in the sky ideas that just won't work on the ground. I've always believed that the customer knows best. They may not know what the solution is, but what their problems are, and they articulate those very well. The beautiful thing about this market is that the customers are very, very smart.
0: What's one example you can say that you got close to right or, you know, where you can say... I understood what the customers need was at that time, and I was able to deliver that solution for them.
1: Absolutely. I think in terms of OpenStax as a reference, we talk a lot about faculty workflow. And a key thing about that workflow that OER had not been doing was what we call meeting scope and sequence requirements. A lot of OER Mm -hmm. was built and it had what I would call it's quirky. It was built for an individual what we said was, you know what, across the market, there is a real pain point around access and affordability. But there's also a pain point that I don't want to have to really fundamentally change the way I've been doing my course. And there is a a rationale to my curricula. And when we looked at this across the board, we saw that there was about an 85% overlap between these courses. And so we built our materials to make sure that we met that need. And that's a great example of Meeting pain points and customer needs with an OER solution.
0: David, how do you, given that you're a nonprofit, how do you keep you? Yeah. How does the, the team and the organization keep itself accountable on the initiatives and right. the initiatives that they meet? that they set themselves, set yourself, I guess.
1: Right. So you mean you mean how? What what metrics do we hold ourselves accountable to? Correct. Correct. Right. So there's four metrics. Uh, I'll say actually the most important one for last. The first metric we look at is adoption rates. You know, where are our resources being adopted? And we track that. Uh, Faculty have to set up accounts, and then they tell us that they've adopting it. The second uh, metric of measurement is the number of students uh, that we're impacting uh, in those courses. Very important. The third metric is a quality metric. What is the readoption rate? One. One. Two. What is the errata rate? A radar reporting rate that we get. We're the most transparent, I think, mm-hmm. publisher in the world are regarding a radar. And then the fourth one is let's call them learning outcome uh, metrics. What are we doing to help improve retention? What are we doing to help improve DFW, uh, uh, drop, uh, fail, withdraw uh, rates? And then increasingly, how are we improving learning? Though so that is still very early in the research. That's something that we're going to be looking at increasingly over time.
0: Makes sense. Does any of this contribute to more funding or less funding from the university? or?
1: Uh, so yeah, in terms of funding, the philanthropists certainly look, we call it venture philanthropy, uh, they certainly look at their social return on investment. So the metrics yeah. of adoption, student impact, student savings, and learning are all very important uh, to us. What's also uh, important for them is sustainability. They don't want to have to keep pouring money in to sustain the library. So that's something we also take very seriously. I'm
0: sure that, I'm sure that, they, like you said, that it's reaching a lot more people. So I'm sure that that's, no, that's less of a case.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: David, just a final point. just wanted to touch a point on offering creative advice for people who want to get into the education space. Right. If you can give them advice, what, what advice would you give them to get to the point where you are and finding the right non-for-profit non as well to match their goals and needs.
1: Yeah, I've worked in both um, for-profits and uh, non-profits, and there's actually there's there's some in some ways there's more similarities and differences comes to career. First thing I would say is find something that you're interested in and you have a passion for, because that will make up for a lot of the challenges that you'll meet on the way. If you're intellectually engaged in your enterprise and your pursuit, I think you're going to be much better at it over a long period of time. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing for me is don't accept authority. <laughs> Some, a lot of the people in authority, they lose touch and they don't know. Maybe this is a contrarian in me. And if you are close to that market and you know in your gut that it's a good idea, pursue it. Don't worry about authority and you will get market acceptance. I've always thought it's much better to ask for forgiveness uh, than permission. And then the third thing, I think it's just it's very important in any career is do what you say, walk the walk, uh, talk the talk, and uh, practice what you preach. Just be very direct and transparent in everything that you do so people will trust you and they know where you stand. It'll also make you much more consistent And I think that consistency over time, especially when you're trying to meet customer needs, really can pay off in huge dividends. That would be my career advice. Oh, have fun. Have a sense of humor.
0: David, it seems that you have fun all the time, just how you speak about the industry. So thank you so much for joining us. I hope everything turns out all the best for the initiatives this year.
1: Great. And thanks so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until
1: next time. our tea with caffeine from green tea
0: leaves.